So can you open up to Acts chapter 3? Good morning to anybody who's uh, visiting or uh, has not been here before, looking for a church, or just uh, from out of town, and of course all of the regulars. It's great to be among you as adopted children of God in and for the sake of Jesus Christ. How good is that? We are in Acts chapter 3. This is our second in a series of what will be probably 10, but I'm flexible. Uh, We're going to go through the 10 most powerful and important informative sermons in the book of Acts and look at uh, what, what they meant, why they were preached, but also how they developed the narrative. We made the point last week, in Acts chapter 1, Luke sets up the book of Acts. He says it in verse 1, uh, the first book that Luke wrote, which is of course the, the gospel of Luke, he, he wrote all that Jesus began to do and teach. And the idea that we get is that now in this second book of the book of Acts, what we're going to see is what Jesus continued to do and to teach from heaven. So that now, after Pentecost, which we looked at last week, Jesus is still active in this world. He's still doing miracles in this world. He's still preaching and teaching in this world. He's still saving people in this world. But he is doing it by the power and presence of the Holy Spirit through his body, the church. So we're seeing these these bold men that have been filled with the Spirit preaching the Lord Jesus Christ um, in all of these different scenarios, will we'll mostly be among Peter and the first 12 until we get uh, to the later chapters, and then it's going to be almost always uh, Paul's sermons from then on, and it's going to be an amazing journey. But we're now in Acts chapter 3. Last week we covered uh, the, the, the Pentecost event when God literally birthed the church. The Pentecost event is not something, and we looked at this, it's not a repeatable uh, uh, thing that happens whenever the church prays hard enough. It was a one-time event where God burst the floodgates of the promises and prophecies of the Old Testament and began the life, the age known as the last days, the age and era of the Messiah, whereby he is now seated on the throne of heaven, ruling and reigning over the world, bringing it into subjection to his rule. All of these sermons through the book of Acts, they laid the foundation for the church. Uh, They literally shook the world so much that the societies they were in, they started getting uh, the apostles and the Christians into political problems, not just because the the apostles were standing up and making politically incorrect uh, uh, claims, and they were, but they weren't just getting up and being rude and trying to get some kind of uh, uh, clickbait type sermons. They were just preaching Jesus so much so that People were saved. They started spending their money differently. They started doing things differently in society so that the people who who liked the status quo and were getting rich and powerful started turning on the apostles because of their preaching, because of the effects that their preaching was having. And that persecution is going to pick up next week. It's going to be, as far as the narrative of Acts goes, it's going to be tomorrow, but we're going to look at it next week. It's going to be in response to this that happens today that the persecution starts coming down. But in Acts chapter 3, we have an unspecified amount of time since Pentecost happened. We know that since then, the the 3,000 Christians have been uh, uh, blessing one another, praying together, listening to what the apostles are teaching. They've been breaking bread. They've been uh, 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 gathering together for prayer. There's been miracles. And then in chapter 3, we see that Peter and John, this is over in verse 1, they were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer. So they were still thoroughly Jewish believers who had simply believed in the Messiah that had come. So they didn't have this all-too-Western, chronologically ignorant view that we might have today, which is that, 
once you become a Christian, they should have just stopped being a Jew, right? There was a complete divide. That's not the case. The, the, the Old Testament Jews who became Christians were the true Jews. It was everybody else that had denied their Messiah, which had cut themselves off. But anyway, the, the first uh, uh, few years of, of Christianity among the Jews, they were still worshipping in the temple. They were still using the temple area as their worship space. And so the, uh, uh, the Peter and John, they were going up to the temple at the time of prayer when at the same time we're told in this, uh, from verse 1 to 10, a lame man who had been born lame, couldn't use his legs, was brought up by some of his friends and laid down at one of the, the main entry gates to the temple area. Not the temple itself, but the large two or three football field size real estate that the, the temple was within. And he was put there because as good devout Jews come up, they know that there's two things you've got to do. You've got to pray and you've got to give. Really handy that there's a poor dude right where you go to pray. So it's just convenient for everybody. They walk up, throw a buck, go and pray, go on home. And so the, Peter and John were walking up and here's this man who's so strategically placed and he asks them for help and they say, because they're prosperity gospel preachers, we don't have any money, sorry, but we can heal you. And so they healed him because they were poor, didn't give him money, but they, they healed him. He got up and he went into the temple area, which he'd never been able to do before. He couldn't walk in there for the first time in his life, walked through the threshold to the worship place of God and started running and exulting and praising God with these newly formed legs that he had. It was an amazing experience. He caused quite a scene because it says that everybody had gathered to see what was going on because they knew this guy as the man who sits at the gate. It was causing quite a stir. It was hard to miss. Everybody who had gathered for that prayer time in the temple had, was seeing what was happening here. And then we pick up in verse 11. I'm going to start reading, but I want to sort of set the, the scene for you a little bit uh, uh, so that you can, you can picture it. The, the, like we said, the, the real estate that the temple was within was a large courtyard about the size of two or three footy fields. And around it was uh, large walls, which were, if you've ever been to UQ, they sort of have a, a similar deal around the Great Court. Uh, large walls, which were really sort of uh, corridors that you could congregate in with large pillars. And that was all around the temple. And, and so you, you come through those walls into the area, and then you go another 100 meters or so before you get to the, 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 the inner court of the temple, and then again, the temple itself. And so as these people had probably gone in, prayed, and come back out, in this, this large eastern wall, this huge corridor that can hold hundreds, a couple of thousand people if you, if you shove them in, that's where people started congregating. And they all started congregating because of this miracle they had seen, and Peter was very used to in the Gospels, and we've been seeing this in the book of Mark, he was used to just sort of uh, letting Jesus step forward, handle the crowds, answer the questions, heal the people, preach the sermons. Jesus is not here anymore, or at least not physically. He sent his spirit in the Pentecost, and now it's Peter. It's Peter who stands forward, who stands up and starts to preach in response to the crowd. They didn't come for a sermon. They didn't care for an exposition, but a good preacher doesn't care why people gather. He gives them the word of God anyway. In season, out of season, Peter stands up, and he begins to preach. So read from verse 11. Imagine the large crowd around this colonnade area. While he clung to Peter and John, 
All the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them. Imagine thousands of Jews running to a large corner of a building. They ran together uh, to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people. Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our power or our piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses, and his name, by faith in his name, he has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has, been, has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. Verse 17. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers, but what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, He thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. The times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaimed these days, you are sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in, the offspring, uh, and, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up this servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. May God bless the reading and preaching and understanding and heeding of his authoritative, precious, inerrant word among us this morning. This is a sermon that Peter preaches powerfully that brings about a great response from the political and social enemies of Jesus. He starts preaching things about the resurrection. He starts preaching things about eternal life, about the Messiah that is entirely against the rulers of the temple. The temple was owned and the high priestly line was controlled by the Sadducees. The religious liberals, if we want to speak that way, the liberal sort of left-wing theologians who didn't believe in miracles, they didn't believe in the spiritual realm, they didn't believe in the afterlife and the resurrection, and they definitely didn't believe in this man they had helped crucify called Jesus of Nazareth. And yet on their turf, which is really God's turf, Jesus' home, this temple, they begin to preach the gospel of Jesus. We said before, They had gathered for the miracle. And and you can see the the similarities this week and last week. Last week, Pentecost had happened so that a whole bunch of miracles happened. 
people gathered, Peter preached and called them to repentance. And it happens the same way today. The Spirit does a miracle to gather the crowd and then Peter preaches Jesus and demands that they repent for killing their Messiah. It's very similar. We're going to ask the same questions every week of these sermons. Number one, how does this develop the narrative of salvation from from creation to consummation? How does this sermon pull along the storyline that God is unveiling? Secondly, how does this sermon help us understand the transition from how God related to mankind through the old covenant and how God is relating to mankind through the new covenant of grace? And we will obviously ask, how does this sermon preach Jesus Christ? And fourthly, we will ask, what modern day applications can we learn as a church on this same great commission and as individuals with the self-same Holy Spirit among us? They will be our questions as we go through. Firstly, we're going to look at what Peter said here when he began to preach the gospel, the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is his first and main point of the sermon is Jesus Christ. Look with me at verse 12. He addressed the people and said, Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our power or our piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham. Now he's just just making very clear. This is the Old Testament God. which which, There's no such thing as New Testament God and Old Testament God. There's one God. So the God of the New Testament is the God of the Old Testament without any differences, discrepancies, or changes. The covenants change. God doesn't change. Making very clear to these Jews, I'm not preaching some foreign God. I'm not preaching some pagan polytheism. This God that we worshipped, that we were just praying to in the temple, this God did something that we thought he had promised he would never do. This God of Abraham, of Isaac, and Jacob spoke through his prophet Isaiah and said, my Glory I will give to no other. Yet Peter begins his sermon by saying that God, the only glorified one, who would never give his glory to anyone else, there's not a second subscript name up on the temple there that he's allowed somebody to chisel in and get some some worship along the side. He's only the one that he glorifies, and he glorified Jesus. What does this say except the fact that the God speaking through Isaiah is Jesus, the self-same God who exists in eternal, coexistent persons of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. God, Yahweh, is his covenant name. He will not glorify anybody else, but Jesus is not something else. He is God in the flesh. That would have been striking to them as they heard him say, he has glorified his servant, Jesus. And then he goes straight for the jugular. This Jesus, God has glorified this Jesus whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate. He just, he didn't take any of the courses at seminary about being, you know, seeker sensitive or how to get a good crowd. You know, if there's anything that gets a crowd, it just happened. It's a miracle. They came, they offer them another healing. Offer them three or four, get them warmed up, tell them they look great, get them laughing, and then mention sin, maybe, but call it brokenness. And say sin is more just like a sickness and God loves you and he, he wants the best for you, all that sort of stuff. Keep it light, Peter. 
Jeez. Jesus is God. You guys killed him. Happy Sunday. That's his sermon. He says, whom you delivered over. We're going to see, I've pulled from John Stott here, the, the fourfold guilt that Peter applies to these people, to the Jews. These apparently very devout, and these were the devout ones. They came, they came for prayer. He says four different things, four layers of their guilt against Jesus. He says, number one in verse 13, whom you delivered over. They handed over their Messiah who was, who was among them. They got him arrested. They brought him to the, to, the, to the pagan Romans. They handed him over for destruction. They did that. Instead of receiving and worshiping and bowing down, they handed him over to cast him out and cut him off from the people. Number one, they handed him over. And they denied him in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. See, Pilate, if you remember the story, Pilate had taken Jesus. He's some political troublemaker. He's doing something wrong. He takes him aside. He questions him. He questions him some more. He asks what he's been doing, what he's been saying, what's been happening. He finds nothing wrong with him, and he just concludes, the Jews are having one of those days. You know? It's fasting day. They're tired. They're hungry. Let's send him back. We'll give him a second option. Brings them out to them, has him beat up, whipped, scourged so that he looks like a bloody mess and then offers them and goes, is that enough, guys? Can we all go home? It's early. My wife's been having weird dreams. Can we just wrap it up? And they deny this Jesus, this innocent man who they handed over. It, it's hard to outdo the Romans in bloodthirstiness. And here they are. What Jesus would call the most guilty generation that will ever live on the earth the generation that had the bloodied Messiah offered to them to just show an, an ounce of mercy. They denied him. So we don't want that. They called for his crucifixion. So they handed him over. Then secondly, they denied him in the presence of Pilate. And then verse 14, it says again, but you denied the holy and righteous one. Hear, hear this comparison. You denied the Holy and Righteous One, capital H, capital R, capital O, and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. Again, if you remember the gospel account, Pilate had given them this offer and he said, I have a tradition, I have a habit that I'm into that on your big holy days, Jews, I release to you one of your favorite you know, prisoners that I've taken because they were causing trouble for the Romans. You liked them, I locked them up, but... It's a holiday, I'll give you one of them. And so he brings out the guy that had been a murderer, a, a, a zealot, somebody killing the Romans, and, and even apparently history tells us he caused the death of quite many Jews. So he brings them out. He goes, who do you want? Perfect, holy, Jesus, you want him back? I'll, I'll give him to you, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, take him back. Well, the murderer, you have brothers, sisters, cousins, dead because of him. We squished you, we squashed you and killed you because he started a revolt. Who do you want? And they deny the holy and righteous one and prefer that the murderer be released and the blameless one, the guiltless one, be killed. Their guilt is piling up and Peter is exposing every bit of it. And then fourthly, we see, again, in this amazing contrast of juxtaposition that Peter puts into his sermon, he says... And finally, you killed the author of life. Jesus was not just alive. 
It's such an insult to speak of, of God as alive or that he exists. You know, he's there. Jesus wasn't alive. He is life. He is the, the source, the, the prince of life, your version might say, the, the beginner, the originator, the ruler, the very source of life. We, we can't say that the ocean gets wet. It's water. The, the essence of Jesus is life. He didn't get life. He said in John 5 that the Father has granted that the Son have life in himself. He depends on no one and nothing for life. John chapter 1 tells us that from him everything has life and those measly little sinners, these, these humans, we despise him and that's not enough. We rebel against him and that's not enough. He comes and we crucify him thinking we've snuffed out the very source of life he who had given them every breath they had ever breathed on this beautiful rock we call earth, killed the author of life, was killed by these Jews. They chanted, they cried, and they demanded that Pilate do what was only to be done for the vilest of criminals, which was crucifixion. Nails through the hands and the feet to the woody cross, where you have splinters sticking into all of the, the whip and scourging wounds that you would hang there, drowning your own blood in your lungs, naked for everybody to see and spit at you. They wanted that. And it tells us that Pilate was, was mortified. He was, he was shocked. Crucify him. What has he done? What has he done to enrage you Jews so much that he needs to be crucified? And they chanted all the louder. Devoid of reason and logic and rationale, they just cried, crucify him, crucify him. And Peter pulls all of that out today. You denied him, you handed him over, you, you, uh, did, you rejected the holy and righteous one and preferred a murderer, you killed the author of life. But we see God undo every one of those acts in one act. All of the shame that had been heaped on Jesus was undone in one act that we see here in verse 15. You killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. Raised from the dead. By doing that, though they had delivered him over, God delivered him right back onto their doorstep. Though they had denied him, God approved of and rescued him in the resurrection. Where they had denied his holiness and his righteousness, God approved of and proclaimed to everybody his holiness and his righteousness because being holy and righteous, he could make the payment of our sin in the grave and on the cross and then come back free of his own debt to guilt, debt to God, death to the wrath, debt to the wrath of God. So that by resurrecting him, he proved him to be holy and righteous. And fourthly, where they had killed the author of life, the resurrection by God's power reestablished eternal life in Jesus, brought him back and reestablished him alive, never to submit to the pangs of death ever again. He who was dead is now alive. That's how Jesus well, uh, uh, introduces himself in Revelation. I who was dead am now alive. I hold the keys to death and Hades. I'm the first. I am the last. This Jesus, they crucified. God 
rose. And, and then in verse 16, we see that Jesus, uh, sorry, like Jesus, Peter now does not obsess over, the, over the, the miracle. The question on everybody's lips was not, what must we do to be saved? They didn't care. They just wanted to know how this guy got healed, how they could get healed, because it's been about three months since that Jesus guy who he killed has been doing some good miracles, and my leg has started to grow back longer again. My gut has started to hurt again. My arm is going, my other arm is shriveled now. I burned it in a fire. Where's Jesus? He's not here. This guy's walking. Surely somebody can do a miracle. And Peter ignores all that. He, He doesn't pretend it didn't happen. He doesn't deny that the Holy Spirit did a miracle, but that's not the point. Miracles are often called signs in the Bible. And the whole thing about a sign is is that it's not the location. It's not the point. You don't go to them. You see where they point and you go there. And so this miracle was pointing to Jesus as a resurrected, pouring out grace and mercy, God. And so Peter makes reference back to it. He says, this name, his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and you know, right? He's, you know this guy. He was lame. He's walking. He's dancing. Not pushing in the court. You know this guy. And by faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. Let's just remember again, he doesn't then put in brackets, who else wants healing? As an apostolic preacher and as Christians who want to follow in the footsteps, not of the most Uh, 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 thriving and biggest churches or richest preachers, but who follow in the footsteps of Peter and Jesus to our death. We preach the gospel at at all points, at all costs, and at every opportunity. Whenever a crowd amasses, it's God tempting you to just stand up and open air preach. That's what's happened. And Peter takes the bait. He's begun preaching. He showed them their guilt. And And I want to talk this moment when he talks about the name. The name of Jesus has made this man well. There's there's so much more in in the name than we often think as as maybe common-day Westerners, modern-day people. It's not just that the name Jesus has some kind of inherent power so that, again, like like I've got friends that do it, walk around and just just say Jesus at things and like some kind of holy spray of, of water. They, they think it's going to have some kind of effect. Like you've got bad dreams, well, say the name Jesus heaps before you go to bed. You know, put, the, put Jesus' bumper sticker on the back of your car. You'll have safe travels. Just speak the words Jesus over a room and it'll be cleansed of its spiritual. I know it sounds silly, but can we just put our hands up and recognize that Christians do some silly things sometimes? The, the name Jesus has no power whatsoever. That wasn't even his name. Some Jewish pronunciation of it. I'm not going to give it a try. I don't have enough. <laughs> but it, he had some other name than Jesus. Uh, uh, Yeshua or, or something like that. So there's no inherent power in the name that makes people well. The Jewish understanding of name is the title, is, is, is the, the roles of that person. The name, the title that is given to Jesus that is above every other name Sorry, famous church that released an album called Above Every Other Name. They said it's Jesus. It's not actually Jesus. Jesus is not the name above every name. It's Lord. That's what Philippians 2 tells us. The name he received above every other name is Lord. That name has inherent meaning and, and uh, ramification. So we've already seen Peter use all of these amazing titles in his sermon so far about Jesus. So, so go back with me. We see in verse 13, 
that he calls Jesus at the end, God glorified his servant Jesus, his servant, which to us doesn't sound very glorious, doesn't sound like much, it's not even capitalized. But to a Jewish mind, and definitely to Peter, what he's referencing is Isaiah's prophecies of the servant of God, the servant that would come. God's servant was going to be somebody that, that in fact, the, the Jewish theologians thought there was going to be two servants, one who will suffer and die, one who will reign and rule in exaltation. But because you can't be both. You can't be dead and scorned and reigning in exalted glory. Except for in the gospel, which is the wisdom and power of God. And so we see in Isaiah 52, verse 13, that he is going to be exalted and have rule and honor. And then we see in Isaiah 53, verse 3, that he's going to be despised and rejected beyond anybody else. And, 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 and it was in Jewish theology, the servant of God was going to be this person, a savior sent from heaven. Two people, but we understand them to be Jesus. So, so he's already uh, made that one name, that one element of what he means by the name of Jesus is the servant of God bringing salvation through humiliation and exaltation. Next, we see that he is called in verse 14, the holy and righteous one. Again, we can look in Isaiah as well as all throughout the Old Testament that, that this is a title for God. He is called the righteous one. He is called the holy one. Wherever you see that written, that's a divine title. There's only one who is true holiness. We have holy people. We have righteous men and women in a human standpoint. But from a divine standpoint, we are all utterly sinful. There is only one who defines holiness, who embodies true righteousness. That is God, or God in flesh, Jesus Christ. The next part of this title that makes up the name is uh, in verse 15, when he calls him the author of life. The author of life is, of course, that, that, that we've spoken about. Him having life in himself is a sign of his divinity, that he is God. Only God is the source of life. And then in verse 22, we'll get there a little bit later, he quotes Moses calling Jesus the prophet, not a prophet, not one of the prophets, the prophet par excellence. And all of these names make up the capital N name that Jesus now has on his throne of glory. And so it makes perfect sense that that guy, the holy, righteous, divine servant of God, author of life, can do something like raise up a lame man and much more, pour out salvation and forgiveness and mercy and grace and submission and subjugation over his enemies, making us his children in and through himself. No wonder he can do all of this. He's all of these things, the name of Jesus. And by faith in his name, glorious things are done in the Great Commission. This is the Jesus that became incarnate, died, and rose for us. This is the Jesus that is now exalted in heaven. And this is the Jesus that Peter preaches. And we see now in verse 17, we can go to the, the big second part of his sermon, which is demanding repentance unto salvation. 
He doesn't wait like he did last week for, for the heartbroken people to, to cry out and say, what must we do to be saved? We're obviously guilty. Look at who we killed. Look at what we did. He doesn't even uh, wait for them to ask the question. He, he comes right out and offers it himself. He gives them the answer in verse 17. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your rulers. You know, I just told you, you knew what you were doing to a degree. But if you fully saw what Jesus was like we saw, the, the incarnate glorified son, if you knew, you would not have killed him. And yet... Both the ignorance of men, what, this is what people do all the time to excuse their sin. It's either their ignorance or it's the sovereignty of God. Well, God's in control. What can we do? Who can resist as well? Or, I just didn't know any better. I can't be to blame. Nobody told me. Where's God? I asked him for a sign and he didn't send it. Peter says, you are ignorant and God is sovereign. You didn't know what you were doing to the fullest extent that you should have and God was fulfilling what he had prophesied long ago. Repent. You're pretty ignorant, but you're not ignorant enough to excuse you. And you're not sinful enough that you can't be forgiven. You're not so ignorant that you don't need to repent, but you're not so guilty that you can't be forgiven. So he says in, in verse uh, 17, You acted in ignorance, so did your rulers. Verse 18. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. You're ignorant. God's sovereign. And in all of that, you are still guilty. The blood of the righteous man is on your hands. And so he says in verse 19, Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out. Repentance is a constant demand from every faithful Preacher. It is not just the sign of the mature Christians. It is the beginning and the daily bread of the Christian life is repenting from sin and turning to God. There is only one time that you repent unto salvation. That's the beginning of your life. You are dead in sin. God calls you to turn from your sin towards him and be saved. But every day, you know this. Every day we need to go to God with our sin in confession daily as we walk through, through the, the day, through the night, through the temptations, the trials, the situations, modern day, just work, everything you do. We have to be in a constant state of turning from our sin, giving it up and turning to Jesus Christ for righteousness. But he's calling them to do that initial repentance unto salvation. Repentance means, in the, the word in itself, naked of all context, it means change your mind. But in all religious texts of the New Testament and other first century Greek texts, it actually always has something to do with changing your mind, but also changing your behavior, changing what you're doing, who you are, how you live, your whole pattern of life. That's repentance. And he says this, this beautiful uh, uh, Two side of the coin command. He says, repent, verse 19, and turn back. Your version might say, and return. He's saying, stop chasing your sin. Stop living in sin. Repent, stop, change your mind and turn around to God. This is the essence of the meaning of repentance in the New Testament. 
Turn from your sin, turn towards God, believing him for salvation. So we don't command that people must change or reform their life, and you are not commanded to become a better person before coming to God. But what we mean is that you, you have an inward resolve to turn from your sin. Do you want to come to God, not just to be forgiven, but to be rescued from your patterns of guilt and sin? That's repentance. An inward resolve to be changed by God. Without it, people are not saved. All throughout the New Testament, and especially the book of Acts, you, you see the, the apostles either commanding, repent and be saved, or they say, believe and be saved, or they say, have faith and be saved, or a combination. Repent and believe. Repent and have faith in God's Son. Whatever it is, we just know that that's a package deal. Faith is a repentant trust. And repentance is a believing turning. They are going together like warmth and light in a sun's rays. We can distinguish them, but we must not separate them. <coughs> he holds this amazing, this beautiful promise out to them in verse 19. You know, we have a, a, a demand for repentance in our world today. You've probably heard it or, or heard of, of, of some version of it, which is no good news at all. It offers no forgiveness. It's the sort of repentance that, that is demanded because of sometimes it's just sins of your ancestors. You know, your type have done something and you need to repent for their sins. Right? Or, or we, can, we can get told, you, you're, you need to repent because of your skin color. Pick whatever era of racism you want. It's every ethnic group against every other ethnic group at some point. Repent, you're that color. You're inferior or you're inherently guilty and sinful because of, it's the privilege or it's the whatever. Or, or we have this repentance that you need to come to because you're a male. Or, or maybe, at other times, because you're a female. There's just something about the way you've been made that you need to repent of, but you can't really repent of. You can't turn from it. The sins will never be blotted out. You'll always be a cisgendered, heterosexual, white Christian male or, or enter any other intersectionality points that you get. People tell you, you know, if, you, if you're oppressed enough, if you're a real sufferer, and here's where it's really no good news and it is damning to the soul. It tells you if you've suffered more or if you're a people group that suffers more or a gender or whatever it is that has suffered a bit more, you have less to repent of. You're inherently a better person because you're not one of the oppressors. But I want you to realize that as Peter's preaching this, the lame man that is now healed, hanging off his shoulder, was sat down right in the crowd, and he's receiving the exact same gospel. We need to know in our day and age, the gospel changes uh, according to the crowd, according to the hearers, according to the color, the sex, the experience, the age, whatever, of the people. But if we're going to be a biblical church, we need to realize that whoever you talk to, whatever life they've lived, whoever you are, whatever life you've lived, privileged or unprivileged or otherwise, the command is always the same. You are guilty because of your sin against God. That's what makes you a sinner. And you need to repent the same as anybody else, a, a racist, a sexist, a feminist, who, whatever. We are all guilty, all turn, all repent. That's the gospel that our day and age needs so that it, it levels everybody. Because a church that preaches a repentance that, that still leaves people on different levels and superiorities at the foot of the cross is no true church. We preach a repentance that demands the same of everybody and hopefully offends everybody the same amount because we all are guilty. We all have the one Savior 
we all come through the one door of salvation, the broken body of Jesus Christ. And the promises of repentance. This is amazing. Look at verse 19. He says that upon repentance may come, uh, sorry, upon repentance, your sins may be blotted out. Sins. Every one of them will be blotted out. In our day of, of Nikos and ballpoint pens and, and spray paint, we don't really write something down unless it's some kind of uh, a pencil with, with an eraser or something, but our ink stains. We have a, a modern technology of, of some kind of acidic component that's in the ink that bites onto the fibers of the papers we use. But, but in the ancient days, they used an ink that stuck to the parchment but that had no ability to, to grab into it. So that if a decree changed or an invite list changed or a citizenship status changed, all that had to be done was a damp cloth taken to the parchment and simply wiped away with, with, with no record of a name ever being there, no record of a guilt ever being written down, no record of what was previously there. That's what Peter promises. The list of your sin. Think what an omniscient, perfect, holy and righteous God. The, the list he must have if he is watching your life day in, day out insides of your thoughts, the motivations of your intents, of your wills and desires, before we even get to your actions, the list that this God has of our sins is enormous, damning. Every one of them. When God's grace is soaked in the blood of Jesus, wipes them out so that there is not a single record of one sin against anybody in Jesus Christ. That's the promise that is appended to repent. Turn away, come to Christ, and have all of your sins wiped clean out. There's a second one. He says, and then, verse 20, the times of refreshing, or, or we can translate as we go, the, the era, the, the season, the event of refreshing may come. What he's saying, from the, from the presence of the Lord. So what he's saying is, is that there's this, there's this word in the Greek, anapsixis. And it refers to this, this rest, relief, refreshment. I wish I was preaching the sermon in summer so we could feel the heat. Maybe you just come up, stand under these lights, and you can all feel it. But, but I, I remember I, I used to go hiking back when I was in uni, take about once a year, I'd take two, day, two nights out, I'd shove stuff in my pack and just start drive as far as my little Corolla would take me and then park it and just start walking into Mount Barney somewhere. I remember one time I had gone and I'd completely misread the map and uh, I, I got lost, way lost. And, and it, was, it was long into the, the, hour, uh, last, the, the, the last hours of the day before I found my tent, set, set up camp, and, and, and I ended up running out of water. So I decided I'll just, and I'm really smart, I've watched the, the Man vs. Wild, so I thought I'll just go home. I've got a tap at home. So uh, I cut it a little bit short, day and a half, I, was, I started walking back, heat of the day, 45 kilo pack on my back. Just walked back, rolled my ankle, fell down a hill, kept on walking up mountains, down, down hills, all of this, and I was sweating. I probably would have had more water in my system if I just stayed at camp and didn't drink anything. But I went walking, lost about three liters of sweat, 
and got back to my car and realized at, at the corner of my eye, ran, ran a little corner, there was this, there was a spring, this, this, this beautiful little lake, this creek at the bottom of the mountain. And, and, and I just took the bag off, threw off my shoes, leapt into this icy cold spring water and just immersed myself for about 10 minutes. And that feel, have you ever been there? summer camps or hard summer, mowing the lawn, you jump in the pool, throw on the sprinkler, whatever it be, that, that breath of refreshing, cooling, resting, reviving, that, that sense, that's the word that he uses. An age, an eon, a season, an event of that on all those who return to Jesus, the the working of the soul, the, the striving and the laboring for righteousness and forgiveness is just rested when you come to Jesus. Refreshing, soul-reviving refreshment in Jesus when we come, if we repent. And then he says, of course, and uh, this is uh, hard to fit into a, a sermon like this, but he says that, um, uh, uh, end in verse 20, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus. He already sent the Christ? Yes, he did. Isn't he going to send him back in the last days anyway? Yes, he will. Uh, so when else will God send the Christ upon our repentance? This is in two phases. Uh, one is a very Jewish sense. The rest is a everybody sense. For the Jews, they've been promised that, that the Messiah will come and all of the promises of the prophecies of your land, of your kingdom, of your wealth, of your, all of this will happen if you receive your Christ. There's all these amazing promises. And, and as they did not receive Jesus, so they did not receive the outpouring of his blessings. They did not as a nation receive Christ. Because they did not all collectively repent, they did not all collectively receive Christ. Therefore, what we call the blessed, God-ordained, Gentile age. The Jews rejected, God brings in the Gentiles, and at the end of time, there will be a Jewish revival. Praise God for that. And yet, there is a sense in which all of us can, can see this promise as personal, as to the church, that, that upon repentance, Christ comes in a way of ruling and reigning power, of, of blessing, that, that a lot of the Old Testament prophecies foreshadowed, but, but we're not stealing the Jewish promises and making them Australia's. We're not stealing the promises of land and military power and applying them to Hope Church. But we receive Christ and all that has been prophesied. This is what they lost because the people did not repent. And yet many who hear his word today will believe, will be saved. Let's, let's, let's start moving quickly through these last things that Peter says. Verse 24. Sorry, verse 22. We've seen how he preached Jesus. We've seen how he then demanded repentance, and we can ask, answer this question. How does this develop the narrative of salvation through Scripture, how, how, how it's developing? Where the Old Testament was looking forward in shadowy, vague prophecies, the preaching from resurrection onwards is clear, decisive preaching of the events of Jesus' life. So that now we're in a different part of history. We, we don't look forward, we look back. And it's not forward through a foggy mirror, it's back with, with clarity and it's preaching decisively that Jesus died and rose. This is how, how the, the, the story continues to move forward. Not anticipation, 
but remembering what God has finally done. Therefore, urgently repent. We're not waiting anymore. It's happened. Get in Christ. And we see from verse 22 onwards where, where he uses these three Old Testament people to point to the gospel of Jesus. He says, remember Moses. Okay, we're talking about all that God has promised. Let's remember Moses who gave us the law and the first five books of the Old Testament. Then we'll remember Samuel and all the other prophets who wrote the rest of Scripture. Then we'll remember Abraham, who is the father of all of the Jewish people. In any sense, if you are Jewish, these guys are your guys. These are your boys. These are the heroes. These are the fathers. These are the overarching patriarchs. So he starts with Moses and quotes what Moses said about a prophet coming later who's going to be like me, but better. He's going to be speaking the word and the law from God. He's going to know God face to face like I did, but it'll be better. And he quotes where Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. He's going to be a Jew. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from among the people. You hear the encouragement and the warning from Moses through the lips of Peter. He spoke of Jesus, the prophet who would come and speak perfectly the words of God and do not be the soul that rejects him. In the Old Testament, capital punishment was for, for many crimes. New Testament, the, the great capital punishment from God is rejecting Jesus Christ. Do not be found, Peter is saying, to be a Jew who denies him. You will be cut off. You will be destroyed. You will forfeit your identity as a Jew. And he goes on. And verse 24, now he's going to talk of Samuel and the prophets. All the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaimed these days, you are sons of the prophets. He's saying you can find in Samuel the promise to David of the eternal kingdom, or you can find in every other prophet the prophecies of what is coming, but they all culminate and they all come here to this point of Jesus, saying you're the sons of these guys. You're the ones receiving the inheritance of what they've been prophesying. Don't lose your inheritance. Receive what they were promising. Receive Jesus. And then he goes to Abraham. So he used Moses and the prophets, which is a way to summarize the whole Old Testament. They used to say the law and the prophets. They all point to Jesus. And now we're going to say that the, the nation must become sons of Jesus. He says also here, and you are the sons of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Again, Peter is saying, if you call yourself a Jew, you're a son of Abraham. And through Abraham and his people, the Jews, God's going to bless the whole earth. Don't be one who misses out on that because of your pride. You're holding on to sin your rebellion against the Messiah. All of this culminates. You, you, you obey the law. You fulfill the prophecies. You prove yourself a true Jew by believing on Jesus. And so the call is the same to us Gentiles today. That, that what we must do to obey the law, if you're worried about righteousness, you're, you're worried about how to be good enough before God, easy. 
Believe on Jesus, who is good enough for you in your place. You want to know how to interpret all of these prophecies? You want to know what these, these amazing writers were saying? Believe on Jesus. They were pointing to him. If you want to be among the people of God, you, maybe, maybe you're one of those guys who does all the, the stuff online, the wacker YouTube channel. You want to become one of the Jews. You, there's cults, there's groups, there's sects out there like that. Guys, the blessing of God is no longer on a nationality or an ethnic group. It's on all those who place their faith in Jesus, have their sins blotted out, and enter into the refreshment of Jesus Christ. Peter preaches this with a vengeance. He loves his brothers and sisters. He preaches Jesus as this glorious reigning king. And his sermon closes out this way. Look at verse 26. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. We, we can answer in this verse, <coughs> how does this Sermon transition us from an old covenant understanding to a new covenant understanding of how God works. Old covenant was blessing the Jewish people, the rest of the world looking on in wonder. Where the Jews were sinful, he would rebuke them and punish them. Where the Jews were righteous, he would bless them and make them to thrive. And now Peter is saying those times are gone. Now God wants to bless us because he is not bringing Jesus later. He's not bringing the Messiah later. He's not still working on our nation. He has sent Jesus, killed Jesus, raised Jesus. Now the covenant of blessing, the covenant of being God's people, is in him. Turn every one of you from your wickedness. It makes it a very easy way to answer our last question. What modern day applications can we learn today? As individuals and as a church, obviously the, the first way we have to look at this is repent. We must be those people who understand that the entry point into the covenant of God is repentance. All of the blessings are appended to faith and repentance. Are you someone who has turned from your sins and daily, daily turn to God in confession and prayer for help? We must be those who are repentant of sin because our Jesus, our King, our God has dealt with our sin. We don't earn his grace. We've received his grace and walk daily in repentance. I love how he phrases it in verse 6. He has sent Jesus Christ to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. God is not cheating you out of any enjoyment by bringing you to him. He is blessing you by turning you from that which kills to turning you to that which gives you life and joy. Let God bless you in repentance. This is our first application. Our second obvious thought is that we must be those who preach Jesus at every opportunity. And since we, have, we are still in that period that he's calling the age of refreshing, we have no excuse to be those who, you know, we'll preach, we'll put it out there, but we'll assume some kind of loss some kind of pessimism about how people will receive it. We are in the age of refreshing. The times of refreshing, where the, the word of God is not falling on constantly dead soil anymore. 
But through prayer and an expectation from the promises of God, those seasons go up and down in history. We trust that God, as he has already done for 2,000 years, will take the gospel across the globe on an ever upward trajectory to bless and glorify his son, Jesus. Preach the gospel, number one, but preach the gospel expectantly and prayerfully. Even chuck a smile on your face every now and then. It'll do a great deal. Let's be preachers evangelists of the gospel of Jesus. And lastly, let me implore you to realize that preaching is a means of grace. It's a means by which God infuses or, or gives or imparts grace to us as his children. There's a, way to, there's a way to think about the Christian life that leads to a poor view of preaching. If the Christian life, and maybe you think you're in this, maybe you just look at other people and assume they are, there's a way of thinking about the Christian life as just a, 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 a highlight reel of wins. It's win after win after awesome day after awesome day, upward and awesome always. I'm just getting gold stars in heaven every single thing I do. And then I come to church and it's just awesome people coming in, sitting down, basking in our own glory. And, and the sermon needs to just be a highlight reel again. You know, how awesome are we? How good's life? How easy is righteousness? Booyah, let's keep going. Now, now none of us if we have the Holy Spirit, actually live with that mindset. We who have the Holy Spirit are, are just far too aware of our sins. So we probably fall on the side of thinking it's supposed to be like that and everybody else lives like that. Or at least the mature live like that. And until I'm living like that, I'm just no good. And what that mentality, I've, I've characterized it, of course, it's, it's a caricature, but, but we, we can fall into that rut. What that mentality does is it makes preaching a remembering how good we are, a reflection of our own glory, a, a kind of coming to enjoy the good spiritual stuff. When you realize, though, that we are weak, helpless, not authors of life, we don't have life, righteousness, sustenance in ourselves. We come needy, tank empty every Sunday. I know you walk I know you, you come in with smiles on your faces, but spiritually, we're, we're crawling to the oasis. We're dragging ourselves through the dust of the earth to just come and feast on Jesus. When you realize the Christian life, not as a constant uh, a series of losses and, and, and sin, no, no, there's growth, there's maturity, but it's battle and it's hard. And it's white knuckled prayer and it's sweat and it's, it's guilt and it's repentance and it's heartfelt reliance on Jesus, it's, it's difficult, then what you realize is that the preaching of the Word of God is not a, not a happy event. It's a means by which God refills us. And so you are willing to come as weak as you are and be fed and be filled and be built up and take on another week of mission and holiness. And so how, how dire is the situation of far too many Christians who go months or weeks without coming to a church service to hear the word preached, where God feeds them. Their appointed time for filling is missed, and week after week, their spiritual stomach shrinks, their muscles atrophy, they weaken, even to the point of not being able to notice their own bad health. Preaching is a means of grace where we feed on Christ from the word of God, inasmuch as truth is preached. So I implore you, make, make preaching something you constantly divulge in. Make, make preaching something you constantly attend 
because Jesus is our Savior. He is still doing and teaching in the, word, in the world today through his church, through you and me, through your brothers and sisters, primarily through this wonderful book we call the Bible. Let's bow our heads. Let's pray. Let's thank God for this word and this sermon from Peter. Father God, we thank you because you are a covenant-keeping God. And as you had promised to give the Messiah, you gave him. And as you promised him that you would raise him and bless a people through him, you rose him and you are blessing a people through him. And as much as you promised that any Jew who repented would receive the refreshing, receive the blotting out of their sins, you did it that day, Lord, in, in Solomon's portico. You, you did it every day that Peter would go out and preach. We thank you that while this is inspired scripture, it's no less history. It really happened and it happens today. You are still the covenant-keeping God that if we believe on Jesus with all of our guilt and all of our sin and all of our unrighteousness, you will still forgive us. When we have nothing to offer, you gladly receive us in because Jesus did it all. It is finished, he cried. Amen, you cried in the resurrection. And amen, we cry as we think about it and we throw our trust onto Jesus. I pray, God, that we would become a church that is undistracted by the world's temptations to change the gospel, to edit the gospel, to make the gospel less offensive, more acceptable. I pray, Lord, that we would be those who are boldened by your spirit, to preach it as we see it in the word of God. Demand repentance from all. Love all because we are sinners ourselves. I pray, God, that you would bless us, save those among us who do not know Jesus yet, and glorify your son in our midst. Everybody said... Amen. Amen. This sermon was preached at Hope Reformed Baptist Church in Logan, Australia. For more information about our church, visit our website at hoperb.church. If you have been blessed, please leave us a review wherever you listen. We pray this message has been used by God to grow and encourage you in your Christian walk. Thank you for listening. Soli Deo Gloria.